You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. G'day, Annie McLaughlin here for this week's edition of Stick Together, the only national program focusing on union news, workers' stories and social justice issues. This program is produced in Melbourne for 3CR and the Community Radio Network and is supported by the Community Radio Foundation. On the stolen lands of Kulin Nation, we pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Equal Pay Day, August the 28th, or rather the day that brings into focus that there is still a 14% gap between women's pay for comparative work with men and that there is a systemic bias in favour of men that leaves women carrying the weight of social cohesion but in poverty in old age. Today's program follows part of the panel discussion hosted by the Women's Unit at the Victorian Trades Hall, facilitated by the co-leads of the women's team, Jodie Pesky and Pia Shaveri. We hear from panel members Tanya Kovac, who's the CEO of Genvic, Melbourne, and Andrea Carson, political scientist and an associate professor in journalism in the Department of Politics, Media and Philosophy at La Trobe Uni in Melbourne, and Noreen Young, industry professor, Indigenous policy at Jumba Institute of Indigenous Education Research at the University of Technology in Sydney in New South Wales. The questions are by Pia. The theme, women have been disproportionately negatively affected by the COVID-19 pandemic. Emergencies such as this have happened in the past and will continue to happen in the future until we dramatically change the systems and structures in which we live. Women already experience a gender gap shown in pay, averaging 40%, as we've already said, less than men, and emergencies such as these risk women falling further behind, which is unacceptable. This is what the panel is talking about. Let's hear what they've got to say. Uh, Well, first of all, I'd have more women in decision-making positions and more from diverse backgrounds too, because I think when you look at um, countries that have done pretty well with managing the pandemic, um, there's women that are leading them. I'm thinking of Norway, Germany, and not far from us, New Zealand. Um, And there's been some academic papers written about this. It's early days, but um, there's a tendency to think it's because economics is not prioritised over health that there is an understanding that they're not um, a binary that, and they're not one against the other, that you can view um, health as being as important as economics and indeed for our economy to thrive, we need to have a healthy workforce. So I think we need to have more women. I commend the Victorian government that has 50% of its cabinet as women and for introducing the um, equality bill that will take place uh, to ensure greater equality within the public service workforce and universities in 2021. I think they're really good measures. Uh, I think we need to protect those at the front line that are disproportionately women and therefore pandemic leave is just a no-brainer so that you don't have people that are not only threatening their health and jeopardising their health, 
but have the capacity to be, provide for their family if they do get sick or to be able to provide for their family when they're behaving responsibly and staying away from the workforce because they may have been exposed to the pandemic. And I think this has really exposed the underinvestment in childcare and in aged care. And both of those things disproportionately affect women. We have mainly women working in the um, aged care workforce. It's been undervalued, underfunded, and as a result, we've seen those workers working in multiple places and childcare needs to be universally supported. Other places have free universal childcare. If we're going to do that, we need to make sure it's properly funded. Tanya, what are your plans for this question? <laughs> Look, I mean, again, I'll just, having engaged in supporting women getting into parliament, I can only just, um, you know, support everything that Andrea has said around the importance of representation. But watching good women operate in parliament, I've also had an, op an opportunity to see what the limitations are, even when you, when you have good numbers. And one of the limitations is, is around the budget. Um, we have never had a female treasurer or a finance minister in the state. And there's very few, we've never had one at a national level either um, and still we're probably some time away from actually making that happen and what does that mean what is manifesting itself um, in even before COVID-19 is that we don't really have a strong gender lens over the way that we spend and uh, utilize this huge resource I mean any government across the country is the biggest business in town so that money that is available within government you want to ensure that it's that it's gender equal so if I could wave my magic wand it would be for there to be a gender equal recovery for treasurers and treasuries to deeply understand that and drive um, all of the stimulus and investment decisions because you know we're going to rely on government the public sector that will drive a regrowth strategy anyone who says that austerity measures are going to be a good thing in order to encompass um, our recovery as a nation are just basically talking about indirect discrimination of women mm -hmm. and, you know, if you hear the term when you if we start getting to that point um, where we're, we're talking about, you know, the need to balance budgets, yada, yada. What we're actually talking about is massively impoverishing women in the public sector. It's about a gender equal recovery. Um, Noreen, what would you do if you were in charge of managing the pandemic? Well, I'd follow the money too. And I've been sinking large amounts of investment into those public services and sectors um, that, as Andrea quite rightly said, have been exposed. But I'd also say not only are we lacking women in those decision-making structures that have led to such awful policy settings during the pandemic, I wouldn't just have women. I'd have diverse people. I'd have diversity represented and I'd have... I'd have intersectionality among women represented but I would also and I agree with Tanya I really hope that we don't go further into austerity measures I would have all kinds of diversity uh, of the diversity that represents the Australian community represented in those decision-making 
um, forums because it is is the diverse communities that's having um, the most that's experiencing the most negative impact. But as Andrea says, what's occurred really is an exposure of mm. where our society is absolutely failing. Um, and certainly, um, I remember one of the meetings that we at We Are Union Women actually coordinated. I remember one woman in particular who was working from home with two children there. She was a single parent as well. And she was saying um, she felt like that the cracks were exposed. It wasn't worse. The situation wasn't different or worse than what it had been. It's just that the pandemic's kind of highlighted and exposed what she's dealing with and how she's working. But now everybody can see it and her life was much more public now. So that... Pia, can I say that that micro experience in the home of that exacerbation is actually mirrored in what is what happens at the macro level within a state or national budget. So mm -hmm. we, we yeah. were, before COVID, we were talking and saying, hey, the budget's not gender equal. Like you mm. don't put a gender lens over this document. When you're in a, when you're in a crisis, you can really see it. It's really mm. interesting at the moment, um, the Parliamentary Budget Office at a state level is tracking expenditure. Now, you, you, we wouldn't usually be able to, tr tracking COVID-19 expenditure, we wouldn't usually see that in a non-pandemic way in, in live time because no one does that. But if you log on to their website at the moment, they show it, they're tracking all the money and how it's getting spent. If you plug in, you know, gender or family violence or women, the total spend ends up being less than 1% of what mm. of that. Now that we know that already. So, uh, you know, there are, there are some important silver linings out of COVID because it is, it is showing what's happening in a, in a very clear way. The other speakers have mentioned childcare. I constantly am in a state of dismay um, many years ago, I was a young union organiser in the childcare industry and um, it was at the time when the accreditation process and the subsidy process was just being introduced. And we were talking about the same things then that we're talking about now. And I then had young children, had them through the childcare system. I'm just dismayed and amazed constantly that we're still talking about this. Childcare needs to be free and accessible to everybody. Um, it is staggering that this happened and then has been taken away from people. I think we have to resolve childcare, but we also need to put some time, and we always talk about childcare as a feminist community, but we need to put some time into out-of-school care, which is highly problematic. The school system still isn't set up for working parents. Um, we need to have some really long, hard thinking about that. And now I'm at the other end and I'm experiencing a lot of elder care issues at that policy setting and what that means for men and women who are participating in the employment market, right, and how that impacts. And we need to look at that from a diversity lens as well um, because for most Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, for example, older relatives are looked after at home or families and it's mostly women um, doing the caring, Aboriginal women doing the caring around all of the care groups, um, particularly relatives with disability as well. So we need to be looking at our policy settings 
um, as it pertains to child, school and elder care in a way that is intersectional and mm-hmm. takes into account the differences in family settings and family setups. And even in families and the way they operate, most families make decisions, most who have got young children. And I have to say, we just, my partner and I just keep looking at each other, saying to each other, thank goodness our children aren't little and we don't have them locked down and having to homeschool them. It's been bad enough dealing with a university student who can't go to the pub. Um, but, you know, that makes you a misery guts. Um, but that those policy settings, I think COVID has exposed and that's what we need to be looking at. It is mm, absolutely, absolutely disgraceful that we entrust the care of people who are precious to us and let's not mince those words and use vulnerable or use disadvantaged or any of those things. What we're talking about is children and elderly people. So people who are most precious to us emotionally um, as a society and as community members are, gi- are being given the short end of the stick, as are the people who care for them. Mm-hmm. And it is just an absolute disgrace in terms of how we see each other as mm. community members. So it, it's really problematic. You're listening to Stick Together, Worker Stories, Union News, Social Justice Issues, Today we're listening to part of a panel discussion put on by the Women's Unit at the Victoria Trades Hall for Equal Pay Day. The panellists include Tanya Kovac, Andrea Carson and Nareen Young. Andrea, what are your thoughts about where women need to be in this recovery process? Thanks, Pia. I think we forums like this are a really good place to start. And I say that because... Uh, it's important to understand the scale and the scope of the problem, but also the hidden impacts that are going to come down the line. And if I use the example of my own sector of academia, because and our own research um, that I've been doing with the University of Sydney and with the University of Melbourne, where we've surveyed Australians and Americans, we found that women are doing the lion's share of the childcare, of the homeschooling, and um, of the housekeeping. In fact, they're doing more housework than they've done in a long time. Men are also doing some of the homeschooling, um, but not as much as women, and they're doing some of the childcare, but off a much lower base. And so that's got a ripple effect for a year or two or three years time. Um, Already journal articles, one of the key indicators in academia about how you're performing, are showing that women are not submitting as much this year. Mm -hmm. And then when you get evaluated for promotion or for leadership roles and all those sorts of things, those metrics come into play. And I'm sure academia, I'm just using that as an example um, because it's one that I know, but I'm sure that's true of other sectors as well, that it's impossible. I don't like the word multi-skilling. I don't think it's actually possible. I think women have just got very good at being able to switch gears really quickly between lots of tasks going on at the same time. And when we've got the kids at home, that comes at a price. We're not doing things to the same level in the workplace that we were doing before. And there needs to be acknowledgement of that, I think, because it is going to impact on what the expectations are for our outputs further down the track. And I think forums like this are a good way to start with that. I also think we need to acknowledge that it's a global problem. The um, UN for Women went to the G20 last month and put forward a statement and a plea that um, going forward, women are at the centre of investment strategies and restructure strategies. Um, They put forward an economic argument that 
women contribute 11 trillion US dollars annually. Their full potential is not being realised, hasn't been realised, and it's certainly not going to be realised in the post-COVID world if we're not prioritising the reinvestment in areas where um, women's potential is realised. And we see that in Australia with the Home Builder Scheme. Um, it's a very male-dominated area that mainly employs men. Um, it's only a certain cohort of people who are able to take advantage of that scheme. You have to have the means to be able to afford renovations or to buy a new house. And when you think about the value of a policy such as that against all the others that could have been available, I think we really need to have a rethink about the way we're resetting because that does skewer disproportionately the gendered response and who are the winners and losers out of that. Um, and then the final point I would make that also came out of our research is that women are feeling the emotional toll and stress much more than men. They're worried about their economic futures more so than men are, and they've got good reason. We've got the ABS stats that show that um, women are losing jobs more than men are, so any wonder they're more worried about it. But we also asked about how people are sleeping. We found that one in three men experienced under the first lockdown um, felt quite calm most of the time. By comparison, the majority of women weren't sleeping very well and were feeling a heightened state of anxiety. So again, talking about these hidden impacts that might come further down the track, we need to recognise there's an emotional and psychological toll that's playing out right now that is going to have an effect further on. And so if we're looking at reinvestment, I think they're key areas. Yeah, look, I mean, we've also done research to help to um, support, which brought together our, all of our members reflecting on the impact of of COVID-19 and you know one of the areas in mental health that Andrew was talking about you know a 2,800 percent increase in one month of attendance to the to the Alfred's women's mental health clinic mm. that's in one month mm. so this is not this is more than stress you know this is significant the impact of um of a disaster is a significant mental health challenge for women what would we what would i do well i mean I, and what could we do i think the real thing is that women have been talking about the solutions with groups like this have been talking about the solutions for equal pay and gender discrimination in budgets for a long time and What's not happening is that that expertise is not being brought into the centre of decision making and then implemented. So we, we've, we're talking at a state and national level about, hey, why don't we just bring the academy, industry, workers, community, all of the people who are, who are experts in gendered workforce nuance who are experts in um, gender and feminist economic theory and for them to provide an independent advisory function to government so that they listen always why are we suggesting this well we were suggesting it before covid we still think it's relevant right now if treasury was prepared they don't have these people inside treasury otherwise you'd see these solutions right what we really need is to have this collaborative approach to the development of of ideas um, and to bring the best women's minds to the application of them how much does something like that cost not very much you know we've got a one 
$1 million over four years budget bid to try to bring some of that together within the state of Victoria. And, you know, there are good, strong gender equity advocates calling for a similar thing at a national level. The National Foundation of Australian Women has basically been performing a sort of sort of this role for free for a couple of years but you need we need something that sticks and that you know the treasurer and the, and treasuries are going to listen to because mm. um, you know finding solutions we're not going to find solutions quickly to everything some of them are easy um but you know dealing addressing some of uh, the gendered segregation in work in workforces some of those things are a bit trickier try in two minutes or less to tell us quickly what you think are the best ways what are the best options for women to create change that they want do they go on strike do they negotiate do they take some other kind of direct action let us know your thoughts uh tanya while you're there what's your thoughts on that i believe in a structured clever international strike i've spoken mm -hmm. a few times about that yep Great. Like, okay. like I, I, we need, and one that is inclusive of non-workers or mm. or unpaid workers, I should say. Um, mm. it, it, not it, the concept of work has to be a completely feminist and feminised one when we do that. Yeah, and I think that's really important to, that we recognise and include all that unpaid labour that is still work and still requires a whole lot of skills, a whole lot of thinking and a whole lot of um, preparation and so on, and yet is consistently disregarded and not considered so. So, yeah, that's important. All right, Noreen, what's your thoughts on how to get change? Oh, I despair, really, at this point. I, I think... Um, you might be inculcated in Victoria from what it's like to live in conservative environments at both federal and state level, but it's very, very depressing. Um, I think realistically at this stage, we have to keep doing what we're doing. We have to keep using forums like this to talk about policy settings. Um, as Tanya says, our volunteer feminist peaks are doing these things voluntarily. Um, I think that um, there's a lot of work going on by Aboriginal women in particular around policy that's being where social media is being utilised a lot. I think the, the advent of social media has in particular changed um, a self to do, provided a self-determining a place for a self-determining voice for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in a way that there didn't exist before Twitter in particular. Um, I think that we need to be supporting our feminist peaks and making our feminist peaks more intersectional. They can be very white, um, which worries me and has worried me for a long time and very able-bodied and very straight. Um, and not taking into the account to account the needs of intersectional women. So um, I'd like to think we could pull off a strike, but I doubt it. I think that levels of exploitation and employment insecurity are so large, both in Australia and particularly in overseas settings at the moment, um, even more than ever, 
that we just couldn't pull it off. But it's not a bad idea, Tanya, and one I'll give some thought to. Great. Well, there's two interesting thoughts there with quite different um, processes behind the thinking, but also both good ideas to take away. And I think, um, Noreen, you're you're really bringing to our attention this need for that diversity lens as well and that um, we can't do it with just looking at gender. We've also got to look at intersectionality as well, which is really important. Andrea, what are your thoughts? Well, I think there's a lot of expertise in the virtual room. So the um, exact mechanism I'll throw back to uh, our guests in the room, but I do think there's some things we can do immediately and that is to ensure that um, job seeker doesn't go to a low level that is um, going to further disadvantage people. I think we need to be lobbying um, as a society, not just as women, to ensure that. And also that JobKeeper um, gets reinstated for childcare workers, and there's some certainty around um, who's included and not included in that. I think it needs to be more inclusive. And I think we need to think about women who are sole traders as well, who. Um, JobKeeper might help shore up wages, but it doesn't help with overheads and with stock and all those other things. And so there's some real gaps there of people, women who are making a real go of things, and then the pandemic comes along and this could usurp their chance um, of, a, uh, of the future that they've set up for themselves. And finally, I think something incumbent upon all of us is to talk to younger people and to talk to our kids. Um, I was talking to my daughter just before this that it would take her 59 days of unpaid work to, uh, or of work to earn the same as a male counterpart and that when she finishes university she um, can expect to be earning $3,000 less and yet we're in the third millennium um, coming into the, in the second decade. That's just crazy stuff. Um, I think younger people are going to help us find the answers to this. Um, the fact that they're pulling all their money out of superannuation though doesn't bode very well. Um, they've got very precarious economic futures. So I think we need to keep visibility up, keep education up, and um, we can do some immediate lobbying on some of those policy mechanisms that are going to make a real difference of JobKeeper and JobSeeker. That's it for Stick Together this week. Before we go, a reminder of the anniversary of Feedom Day, when on the 23rd of August, 1966, Vincent Ligari led 200 courageous Indigenous stockmen and their families to walk off Wave Hills cattle station in the Northern Territory protesting against the work and pay conditions. The walk-off took place 80 years after the British invaded Gurindji land, bringing cattle and farming that destroyed Aboriginal water and food supplies and livelihoods. These 80 years included massacres and killings, stolen children and other abuses by the early colonists. So we're going to finish the program today with the song that marks these events from Little Things, Big Things Grow by Kev Carmody and Paul Kelly. If you want to catch up with our program, the podcast is available at 3cr.org.au or iTunes and you can contact the producers of the show at Sick Together. 3cr at gmail.com. My name's Annie McLaughlin. Remember, wherever you are, whatever you do, there is a union for you. And until next time, stick together and keep safe. It's a great privilege and an honour to be here to um, celebrate the legacy of 
his own man. We always felt he was a comrade in our camp. So um, <clears throat> I feel it's a celebration. So if you want to sing along to this, um, you will not be removed by security. Tell you a story, an eight-year-long story of power and pride. British Lord Vestey and Vincent Lignari were opposite men on opposite sides. Vestey was fat, honey and muscle. Beef was his business, broad was his door. Vincent was lean, spoke very little, he had no bank balance, our dirt was his floor. From little things, big things grow, from little things, big things grow. The Ringy were working. Nothing but rations But once they had gathered The wealth of the land Daily the pressure Got tighter and tighter The ringe decided They must make a stand They picked up their swags Started off walking At what he did Sat himself down now it don't sound like much Sure got tongues talking Back at the homestead Then in the town From little things Big things grow Can't we have from Little things Big things grow I'll double your wages Seven quid a week You have in your hand Vincent said Uh-uh We're not talking about wages We're staying right here Till we get our land Bestie man rode Bestie man thundered You don't stand a chance Of a cinder in snow Big city we fall Others arising From Things, big things grow from little things, big things grow. Then Vincent Ligari boarded an aeroplane and landed in Sydney, great big city of lights. And daily he went round, softly speaking his story. To all kinds of men From all walks of life Vincent sat down Let Greek politicians This affair they told him It's a matter of state Let us sort it out Your people are hungry Vincent said no thanks We know how to wait From little things Big things grow from little things, big things grow from little things. 
in Vincent Lignaro Returned in an airplane Back to his country Once more to sit down He told his people Let the stars keep on turning We got friends in the south In the cities and towns Eight years went by Eight long years away One day a tall stranger Peed in the land He came with lawyers Came with great ceremony Threw Vincent's fingers Or that handful of sand From new things Big things grow From new things Big things grow From new things Big things grow Vincent Lignari But this is the story Of something much more How power and privilege Talk move people Who know where they stand They stand in their law From new things Big things grow From new things Big things grow From new things Big things grow You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.